The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Can you hear the fan? Do you hear that fan blowing on me right now? No. Good, because it is so hot in here. And I but need it looks it. so oh, Fabio with your hair going. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you know, it's kind of, it's that 80s windblown look. Yeah, I know? get that same thing all the time. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we've got storms rolling through. It's so hot everywhere. It's just, it's really unbearable. And uh, it's making me really grouchy and, and just incredibly angry. So you're normal. Yeah, my anyway, normal self. Yeah. Hey, I do want to give a, a shout out to a very close friend of mine and practically a brother, Grant Wilson. His mother did pass away today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just, uh, all the love in the world to him and his entire family. And, uh, you know, just so they know they're in all our prayers. And I, I've talked to him a couple of times and, uh, I mean, it, it's tough. It really is. And uh, I wish him the best. There are very few losses that people feel that uh, are as impactful as the loss of a parent. Uh, so I know how, what he's going through. And um, my heart as well to you, Grant. You know, right. stay strong, my friend. All right. So anyways, uh, you know, so we got a great show. Anyways, uh, head over to, if you get a chance, head over to facebook.com slash Radio, like the Facebook page for us. Then head to beyondrealityradio.com. You can find all the stations we air on across the country. You can download the free iPhone and Android app, which allows you to listen live, catch past shows all on the go, and so much more. Or just uh, listen right from the website at night we're live. Just click the Listen Live button in the upper right-hand corner, and you can hang out in the chat room, GV, myself, great community of people are usually there, and so forth. Um, you know, today, Jim, uh, it was uh, Amazon's Prime Day, right? Yeah, I don't really know what that means, but I saw something about it. Yeah. It's uh, all their huge deals. I mean, they give you this, like, wicked... Looking incredible deals for 30 some odd hours and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And it would have been great, it, except that the site crashed and crashed <laughs> and crashed and it kept on crashing. So if you know anybody who tried to buy something on Amazon or you may have, if you yourself uh, tried, I'm sure you had a hard time because Amazon's website crashed as soon as Prime Day began. Amazon's website had been experiencing issues for hours uh, due to heavy online traffic and uh, and it's it just it got worse and worse and it kicked in literally prime kicked in at 3 p.m eastern time at 305 their site started going down i uh, you know i'm sure robert Mueller is on the case i'm sure the russians had something to do with it and i'm i'm sure that it'll come yeah. out after about 200 sus- subpoenas nothing to say about that one but um and it's not clear how widespread the outage was but uh it was going pretty much I mean, the entire U.S. was was having issues with, and I'm sure uh, everywhere else. But uh, and the weird thing is, Jim, you were getting <clears throat> when they were having these problems. All right, so it would it would just constantly pop up with a random picture of somebody's dog. That's and what would, would show up. Yeah, and, and I guess it was in pictures of employees' dogs. I don't know. That's what one of the reports are saying. Just random pictures of employees. Well, that's dogs. more and interesting. Says, one of those site down messages <laughs> that you get. And it was saying, it kept on saying, oops, uh, something went wrong and everything else. But um, last year on Amazon's Prime Day, they generated an estimated of $1 billion in sales from their 30-hour event, which roughly uh, equates to about $34, mil- uh, $34 million every hour. Uh, so other estimates say that it, it was closer to $2.8 billion. But they were expecting $4-plus billion in sales from this Prime Day. And, you know, they kept on, this thing kept on popping up. Well, uh, some uh, alerts went out and they, they acknowledged the issues on Twitter and so forth, saying that there were still like 30 hours left or whatever. So uh, we'll see how it goes. I well, mean, not sure, but Amazon crashing? 
can't handle the young the traffic, the very traffic they're putting out there for. Well, it'll be interesting to see if it, if it was regular usage traffic or if there was some type of hacker traffic going on. Because I know that even things like uh, you know the PlayStation Network and gaming networks get hit by these hackers, and they just flood data. I can't remember what, what there's a word for it, where they just flood the servers with with meaningless data, yeah. and it just makes them crash. And they do it intentionally. Um, you know, it'd be interesting to see if there was a, a competitor or a foreign nation or some other type of nefarious activity going on there to intentionally make Amazon's servers crash. Or was it just that much of an increase in usage um, over last year's Prime Day that uh, that they, they weren't prepared for it? It'd be interesting to know the answer to that. Well, so far, they haven't, they haven't come out and fully admitted everything, but it's looking like it just was the amount of traffic that was, that was hitting the website. Um, they haven't come out and said anything about having eh, being attacked by hackers or anything of that nature. So we'll, we'll have to see what happens. But, I mean, definitely sucks. I mean, a lot of people are waiting for this, and they just couldn't get on and place their orders. be interesting so, also to see if they have a redo. You know, let's try it again whenever. But, see, yeah, you know, exactly. you know trying to make up for it. I mean, a lot of people would be angry. So, But we have a great show f- tonight for you. It's not going to have any, anything to do with anything we've talked about so far. But we've got Jeremy Finley joining us on the program. He is an author and a journalist. He's an investigative reporter. He's got a new uh, novel out that's called The Darkest Time of Night. It's been hailed as the Close Encounters of the new generation. So it's going to be an interesting discussion about that. But even more interestingly, he, as an investigative reporter, he has done some phenomenal work. Some very high-profile, nationally and even internationally recognized cases have come out of his work, and we'll be talking about that stuff with him. Yeah, we'll be bringing those up, and I think a lot of you will be extremely surprised to find out the well some of the things that he has been involved in. Yeah, it's some groundbreaking stuff. Uh, he's, you know, you, you bring him right up there with the work that Woodward, Woodward and Bernstein did. Of course, the guys that broke Watergate. Um, he's done some political scandal stuff. He's done some corporate scandal stuff uh, and a lot of great work. So we'll be talking about all of that with him. A lot to come. Uh, the phone number tonight, like every night, is 844-687-7669. Again, toll free at 844-687-7669. We're going to take a quick break at our guest, Jeremy Finley, on the, on the line. You'll listen to Jason and JV, Beyond Reality Radio. We'll be back after this. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Joha. That's J-O-H-A-W. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You should check out his website. It's jeremyfinley.com. You can also get more information about his new book called The Darkest Time of Night. It's his first novel. Jeremy is an investigative reporter, an author, and a journalist, and we're pleased to have him on the program. Jeremy, welcome to Beyond Reality Radio. Jason and JV, it is great to be here. I'm thrilled to be here, and thank you so much, guys, for having me on. Oh, thanks for coming on. We've been looking forward to this. Let's let's um, let, that's okay. Let's start uh, with the book just for a minute here. Um, the darkest time of night. It's your first novel. It's my first novel. It. Uh, I've been a, a working journalist since I was seventeen years old, and um, I'm out now with my first work of fiction. And I'll tell you, it's it's been the the dream of a lifetime to really get to this point, uh, have this book out, and I've really been able to. Uh, 
uh, explore my interest in the paranormal and the supernatural with my love of thrillers, and I put all this together with this book, and uh, it's just been great to see how well it's been received and, and to be on shows like this. It's, it's been great. Now, that path from a reporter to a novelist, and we're going to talk more about the book in a little bit, but that path going from being a reporter to a novelist, that's not an uncommon path. Is there a, a calling or something when when you either set out to be a novelist that you kind of go through that reporter path, or is it once you become a reporter, you, you yearn to write something that you can put your own name on as as your original idea? You have tapped into, I think, what every reporter suffers through, which is, I think every reporter thinks, oh, I've got a book in me. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just something that is inside us. I think when, when we do write stories on a, on a deadline, on a day-to-day basis, and you encounter people from all walks of life, you're always thinking, oh, I've got, you know, I've got a novel in me. In my case, I, you know, originally had always wanted to be a novelist. That was what I always wanted to do. Um, but I, I also fell in love with journalism and chase that and continue to chase that uh, career and and really love that work as in doing investigative reporting and I think that I, I just got to a point where I, I was like okay you know I've always wanted to do this this has been the dream since I literally was in the fifth grade wanted to be a novelist and decided okay you know I've, I've, I'm at that point where I need to tar- start taking this serious and you know it's it's a long path anybody that writes a novel will tell you it is a long and grueling process uh, just to get it done and then to get it published and to go through all of those steps it's it's a long road but i think uh, uh, to answer your question i think just most journalists will you know kind of yearn to be able to do that long form storytelling whether it's nonfiction or fiction well and i i agree with you with it. it's a long path it really is and i've written i've written six books and it's one of those things where a lot of times, it's, the hardest thing is to put down the thoughts, and you, it's probably easier for you as a journalist. I, I'm a TV guy, but it, it's one of those things that take what you're thinking and put it into words, and that always seems to be one of the one of the hardest things. It is, and you know, if if you're like the rest of us, which are just huge fans of the greats in in our uh, in, in literature, you you see how well they do it. And you think, okay, I'm going to study them. I'm going to study the greats. I'm going to really understand how a great story is told. And you know how you are as a reader, and how and how we all are as readers is you get into a great novel and you you just love it. And then something sometimes something goes wrong, and you get frustrated, and you think, well, what what just happened? What well, this book that I love so much? Why has it gone so wildly off the rails? And so it was really important for me to study the greats to see how they really told a great story and, and try to leave my own imprint uh, by using their you know, success and, and their methodology. So I think that's a big part of it. Jeremy, I'll bite. Who are the greats? Who are the greats? Well, I think we all know the greats of literature, so we'll leave those behind because that is, um, I think we've all gone through the, the high school English and college English courses, and we know that. But when I say the, th- the greats, I'm talking to speak strictly from a thriller standpoint because that's what I write, and I specifically write paranormal and speculative thrillers. So, of course, you always have to bow down to Stephen King, and all of us that are huge Stephen King fans look at him, and when we say, my God, look at what he's done in his career. But you also have to look at, at the at the common in, in my personal favorite. You look at Robert McMahon, and he. Mac, I think I'm saying his last name right. That's terrible. I, I'm such a huge <laughs> fan of his books and uh, like a boy's life and all of those. 
Um, there's also a great uh, novelist out by the name of Michael Corita, and he writes speculative fiction as well as other thrillers. Um, you've got Jennifer McMahon, and I think that I've combined their two last names. She's a great thriller writer that writes in the speculative genre. Um, so I think you, you know, I know for me, I really looked to them and I said, okay, these are people that are writing great thrillers, and they're making this combination with the otherworldly aspect and the supernatural and the speculative. And to me, that is just, I actually wrote a, a column about this for the website Criminal Elements about a week or so ago, uh, just talking about how I think the speculative thriller is just such a great thing for the summer. Because, you know, a, gr- a summer paperback is just one of the greatest things you can do, taking yourself to the beach with that. But when you take a Stephen King with you or, or uh, one of those other authors that I had mentioned, and you're on the road of a great thriller, and then you're also veers wildly into an otherworldly aspect of it. I, I don't know. For me, I just think that's a great uh, summer read. It's a great way to enjoy any type of vacation you're on. Well, and the funny thing is, I've I've been one of those people been sitting there reading reading a Stephen King book, and you don't you know, you're so into the book that somebody starts trying to know, well, somebody's talking to you or, or saying something to you, and you you don't even hear it. You, you, totally, right. you totally phase the world out around you because you're trying to figure out what's going to happen next. And, you know, we live in a in a in some troubled times, you know, in a, in a lot of different ways. And I think that is why there is still such a yearning for, you know, great writing of all genres. Um, but I think especially for thrillers, you see that people are, are wanting something to help them escape in a healthy way. Um, and I think that's, at least that's what I do as a reader, too. Um, I, you know, I sit down and I want to pick up those books that really just take me away. I'm reading a Brad Thor thriller right now. And and it just, he's such a great thriller writer. And you read his stuff and it just transports you uh, completely away. And uh, I also, at the same time, in rereading one of the F. Paul Wilson greats, which is The Keep. And he's fantastic as well. And you just read these books, and, you know, anybody that's listening to this now knows it. Once you, like going back to Stephen King, he's just got that magic, guys. He just can sit down there and tell you this story, and you are hooked. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of novelist I want to be. I want, I want you to say, okay, here's a Jeremy Finley novel. Man, I love these things because they, you know, really tell me a great story, and they let me kind of jump out of the troubles of the day. I, I think that's kind of a, a primary mission for the novelists of this time. We have about 30 seconds before we have to jump into break here, and you've mentioned Stephen King several times, and I just have to wonder, as as somebody who has written a novel, you, how does somebody like Stephen King write so prolifically? And almost every one of those works is a landmark work that's just a phenomenal read, and they're not small generally. They're very, very thick, thick reads. Right, you're not talking about a 200-pager or a novella or anything. I, I think in just studying his stories and what he does, it, this is beyond just being able to have a gift. This is something that he, I think, has to do. When I've read interviews with him, this is what he has to do, has to do it well, and I think he is just so fine-tuned into what his readers want to read that he knows these compelling stories and he just takes it off and run. I think it's literally something he has to do, and thank God he does. 
Yeah, thank All God right. he does, because he's, he's given us some real treats, that's for sure. Mention something quickly, because we're having storms go through here, and uh, whenever the weather is this humid, this hot in the Northeast, we get these bands of storms coming through. And uh, on Saturday, in fact, one of those bands of storms came through, and a good friend of both of ours, Jay, Scott, uh, you know, Scott my, from yeah. Cooperstown, he was driving, actually, to meet me, uh, to go to a gig with me, and as he was driving, a very, very large tree fell on his car with a power line and um, and he made the mistake of getting out of the car um, at the time which fortunately he got a shock but he didn't get killed or injured seriously but nice the the power company when they arrived said you should not have gotten out of the car there was a 90 percent chance you would have gotten electrocuted you just happened to be in that 10% where you got out okay so uh, I just want to mention that because if anybody finds themselves in that situation Unless the car is on fire, stay in the vehicle until the power company shows up. Yeah, yeah. We there was just a case recently of uh, a mother and her two children that were stuck in the car, and, uh, and they ended up having to get them out. But I mean, it's crazy too because these storms come through and there are these weird bursts, especially here on the East Coast where you've got the water. Depending on the water temperature, yeah. it just mm-hmm. amplifies the power mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, we were at the lake house uh, last week, and it was beautiful out. And all of a sudden, we were getting winds of like 50 miles an hour, blowing the umbrellas all over and everything else. And it was crazy. They so whip, you never know. Yeah, they whip up out of nowhere. But anyway, our guest tonight is Jeremy Finley. He's an investigative reporter, reporter uh, journalist turned author, um, and he's done a lot of great work. And Jeremy, how long have you been... A, a reporter slash investigative journalist. When did you get started in that? So I actually started when I was 17 years old. Started working uh, at my college newspaper, but my college newspaper had a pretty large circulation, and we when we it was a daily newspaper. So I started oh, wow. working actually then covering stories when I was 17. But I moved into doing investigations full time about 12 years ago, and it's been truly what I've wanted to do my entire career is to move into that world of holding the powerful accountable and and investigating all kinds of taxpayer waste and criminal activities and, and things like that. So it's been for about the last 12 years that I've done that. And, and truly, I, I think I've, I've found the, the most important work that journalism is about. And, and, and we all know this, the importance of, of true investigative reporting. So uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to do that on, on a day-to-day basis. Well, I have to say that I, um, I'm um, in agreement with that particular statement. And I think there's far too li- little of it in the media these days. Uh, A lot of the media just seems to be an echo chamber for what other media is saying or maybe what's coming out of uh, our leaders and politicians' mouths. Do you think the state of media is is, um, struggling with that particular concept, with their watchdog role? You know, I, it's interesting you should say that because there's so many of us that truly feel like as, as as embattled as the news industry is, and I I see it every day, everywhere that I go. I think that we will look back on this time in history and see that this is a golden age of journalism, because I think that what we're doing here is we are fighting the stigma day to day of the fake news uh, mantra. And this is a time where journalists have to prove their strength, and they have to prove just how tough they're going to be, because the criticism is coming from all sides. This isn't just one. Of course, it's, it's easy to look on the national level and see, 
you know, who's criticizing journalists and all of that, but it, it's trickling down. It's coming down to uh, local governments. I get it, uh, where someone doesn't like the facts that I've reported, and they'll call it fake news just because they don't agree with it. Um, but I think that it is something that the news industry has to grapple with. It is something that you, we have to uh, come to a, some kind of understanding and realize with our readers and our viewers and our listeners that uh, that there's something that they're angry about. And if journalists don't realize that and really start listening to the people that we're reporting on, we're, we're going to be in some trouble. But, you know, the, the whole point of investigative journalism is, you know, we're not out to make friends. We're not out to be the most popular kids in school. We are literally out to challenge authority. We are out to, ch- to shine a light in the dark. That is what we do. And if you can make peace with that, if you can make uh, understand that this is going to be your, your role is to really ruffle feathers, then it's I, I, what I consider to be a pretty noble profession. Well, especially investigating, uh, investigative journalism. I mean, that's a whole other aspect of of uh, the media these days and and the problem is the media used to report the facts but now it's more that they report what suits their agenda but when it comes down to investi- investigative media uh, journalism it's totally different because they they're really digging in they're they're going in and trying to find the the accurate information whether you like it or not sure and it's um and, and you're absolutely right in the sense of you know it is it is what you when you look at these reporters and you think of what they've exposed this year you know in, in cases like Harvey Weinstein and in tackling these issues that people for so long have been it's been an open secret and they tackle them and it's the change they've brought about is just incredible incredible i will say that i i think and and i you know it's funny i was just getting this criticism today on my own facebook page where i had posted i was in new york a couple days ago and the new york times has this mantra that is is uh, out on uh, uh, the front of a building and it just talks about that the truth is uncomfortable and the truth is difficult at times and i posted it and i got all of these i have all of these uh, friends that are both leaning left and then leaning right and it was all this criticism and there's this real anger towards the people believing that the news departments have this agenda now you know you can debate this as long as you want to i just know that i know journalists across the world and across the country and literally these men and women wake up every day and they just want to tell the truth and yes they're going to challenge the powerful they're going to challenge the president they're going to challenge everything um, and it's not going to make them popular but journalists don't get into this line of work to um, to, to sit there and try to appease someone um, it's it's part of even in my own fiction writing that I want to challenge people and it's the stuff that you guys do on a on a nightly basis and with your in your other programs, you are challenging what people believe, and it's not easy, and it's not popular, but, um, you know, this is what we do, and if you can do it, and you can really, you know, influence people or show them something else that they may not absolutely believe in, then I, I think that's the the world that we have to be in, and, and I think it's important as part of our discourse that, you know, that we do this. Jeremy, I think I know the answer to this question, but I want to hear your answer to it. What's the difference between a reporter or journalist and an investigative reporter? So, you know, you like to think that all reporters are investigative reporters, all good reporters are investigative reporters, 
But the truth of the matter is an investigative journalists have a little bit more time to dig in. So, a, you know, a daily general assignment reporter that you read in the paper or online or see on the nightly news, they're turning a story every day. Every single day they're covering something. They're covering the president or they're covering the shooting in a, in a neighborhood or a city council meeting. Investigative journalists like myself, we still turn several stories a week, but we're working on much larger projects. And, and I know for myself, running a, a fairly um, large investigative unit here at the NBC station in Nashville, uh, you know, we do surveillance operations, and we do undercover work, and we fight for open records, and we have all these long-form projects that we work on. And truly what you've got to expect from a day-to-day reporter is they're going to report the facts. They're going to report what this person said and what that person said. Investigative journalists will then delve in deeper and say, okay, this is what the people say, but we actually dug up the records, and here's the proof. Oh, and here's the hidden camera video we have that shows the proof. And here's this that we've uncovered. And it takes time, and it takes resources. But to me, it's the most important thing that journalism is about is is bringing the proof to the people. That is truly what this is about. And and I, I think that it's vital that people understand when they see a in-depth investigative report, it shows you that a journalist has cared enough to really bring you the proof. So I think that, you know, if you see, have local television stations or radio stations or, or anything that has investigative units, I think that's a true sign that they're in it for all the right reasons. You know, a lot of us, and I, I don't know if this is changing with the generational change, but a lot of us look at the Watergate coverage and breaking of that story as kind of the holy grail of investigative reporting. Do you, as an investigative reporter, hold that particular example up to that level? Oh, well, I'll tell you, when I was um, when I was growing up, my, my parents read the newspaper, which is why I wanted to be a newspaper reporter at the beginning, and they really didn't watch that much television except for 60 Minutes. So my whole exposure to to this was to see, oh my gosh, you know, look at this incredible news op- operation that is on every Sunday night that has this. But yes, I mean, Watergate Watergate made journalism romantic for so many of us because it was these two guys that were just embattled and they were just beat up left and right um, and criticized by the president and just tore up in Washington and they literally you know, changed Washington forever. And, but I think we're seeing much more of that. If you see the women that did the stories, the, the female reporters who did the stories on Harvey Weinstein and, and saw the, what the risks they took, and you think of Ronan Farrow and everything he went through to expose it, I, that's why I kind of think in a lot of ways we're seeing this golden age of journalists really challenging the powerful and, and taking them down one by one. And so I, I think Watergate set the tone, uh, like it or not, uh, if you go back and look at Watergate, it was very much the president constantly criticizing the Washington Post, constantly. And that was, the, that was his methodology. Now, you know, what we're seeing in our, our own presidential uh, coverage right now is a million different scandals that everybody's head spinning about. So history will show us what ultimately uh, will prove to be the major scandals of our time. But I think all you have to do is look at these powerful men all over the world uh, that literally have been brought down because of the work of journalists. So, you know, I, I feel strongly about my, my colleagues across the nation and across the world that are, are really trying to do this good work. 
We're talking with Jeremy Finley. He's an author, a journalist, an investigative reporter. His book is called The Darkest Time of Night. You can find it on Amazon. You can also find it on his website, jeremyfinley.com. Right now, we're talking about uh, basically what what the state of the media has been recently. We get all sorts of um, media self-reporting and criticism coming from both government circles and other media circles and social media. And uh, Jeremy, as somebody who's kind of... uh, you know, you got your start prior to the social media revolution, but you've certain, certainly seen the social media revolution. What's that doing to the state of our news industry? You know, it's really interesting that you brought that up. And, guys, I so appreciate you talking about this. I think it's important that we have these conversations about how feel, people feel about journalism and, and the state of the news media. So I, I appreciate this conversation that we're having. Um, I, I think the social media revolution has completely changed journalism in, for good and bad. Um, you will see this constant flow of information. And I think that's the thing that we really have to step back and, and talk about which is where we're getting our information. And I think Facebook has changed this so much because people will take information that they see on Facebook or they see somewhere and they will put it out as truth. And it will be shared and shared. And and and, and I think that's, that's destructive to a sense because when you're sharing information without truly understanding where it's coming from and it's passed off as news, um, then I think that that gets a little dangerous. So I always encourage people, I say, listen, if, if you're reading something on Facebook, look and see who posted it. Look and see which news organization put it out. Are they, do you consider them to be biased? Do you consider them to have really be someone that does their homework? Are they even a news agency at all? And so I think for that sense, we have to kind of really take a step back and be much more critical viewers and readers and listeners and identify these the sources of, of news, where they're coming from. I think Facebook is doing a better job at that now because of the criticism that they have faced. But, you know, we see it on Twitter. We see it on our aunts and uncles and parents' Facebook pages and friends' Facebook pages. And I just think it's important that we become as critical as we can about uh, the sources of information of where we're getting them and really leaning on news organizations to say, okay, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm relying on you to bring me this information, to bring me this on an unbiased source. Now, here's the thing. People say this all the time. Do reporters have biases? Absolutely. They're human beings. Should it make its way into their reporting? Absolutely not. Never, never, never. But that doesn't mean they don't have it. A good reporter just hides that and doesn't let it influence his or her reporting. Now, let's not sugarcoat things. We all know that there are news outlets that lean left and lean right. Um, There's a reason that uh, their corporate ownership does this. And I think we as savvy people have to sit there and say, okay, well, I get that. So I'm going to need to find the news organizations that challenge the way I think, bring me other sides of a story that I don't uh, necessarily agree with. I think one of the most dangerous things that any of us can do is follow a news organization that tells us what we want to hear. And and that's when I think that you should know as a listener or a reader, oh, I only watch the news programs that tell me what I agree with. I think that's dangerous. I think that is not what news, you know, 
publications and, and websites should be about. And, and please understand the difference between a commentator and a journalist, because the, the men and women that you see on the cable shows at night, uh, you know, oftentimes they have journalists acting as their producers, but these people are commentators. When you see their programs on Realize, they're sharing their opinion, and there's a huge difference between that and the men and women who are on the ground every day, you know, fighting to get information and, and delivering their stories. So, again, being critical listeners, viewers, readers is, is vital in this age. Now, I, I just got to, you just maybe said something here. I'm not sure I understand. Did you say that if it's on the internet, it's not necessarily true? <laughs> I know. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> it's a shockwave. It's a, it's a shockwave. Um, but, you know, it's funny. You, you still see this. I see it every day on my Facebook page. I am blessed to have friends and followers that are on all ends of the political spectrum. And they will share things. And I, I just want to say to them, look, I know you're a smart person, but you, what you're sharing is not accurate. It's not true. And, you know, sometimes I say that and, you know, I try to avoid, you know, online and social media wars with people. But I, I do think it's incredibly vital for people to realize, hey, you know, I'm, I'm a smart person. I'm going to challenge um, what I'm reading here and really look and see the source of where this is coming from. And I think that's important. I've, and most of us, I, I've even fallen uh, fallen for fake news sometimes when it pops up and because it pops up in the craziest places. Yeah, but but the funny thing about that is it's usually about you and you believe it. Yeah, well, yeah, I know. I believe that. I believe the stories. I mean, yeah, jeez. But we have uh, a great guest tonight. We're going to bring him back in in just a few minutes. Jeremy Finley, who is an author and investigative reporter, he's got a book out called "The Darkest Time of Night," which we're going to speak about as well. Um, but I wanted to mention this: uh, there's a church in um, Hobbs, uh, New Mexico, which is being investigated by uh, scientists and the Roman Catholic Church for the claims of a miracle. Apparently, there's a statue of the Virgin Mary there that has been crying. And not only is it crying, but they tested the substance that's coming from her eyes because it was a little bit more uh, viscous than water. And it's been determined to be olive oil. Olive oil? Really? So the Virgin Mary in Hobbs, New Mexico, in the Lady of Guadalupe Church, Catholic Church, is crying olive oil. The scientists have looked at the statue. They've actually looked at the interior because it's a hollow statue. There is no um, sign of any kind of hoaxing or tampering, um, but they're baffled as to why this would be olive oil. Now, I'm assuming if they let some of the uh, wine that they keep for communion uh, sit a little while, it'll turn into vinegar, they could have themselves a nice little salad dressing there. Well, that's actually not a bad idea. See, you're a problem solver. You really are. But uh, they're, they're investigating. The church is very interested in it. The scientists are very interested in this, and they haven't made any determination yet. But at this point, it looks like it could be something interesting. Jeez. Well, that's amazing. Um, I do want to give a, a shout out. I did first hour, and I know some of you might have just tuned in late. Uh, my co-star from Ghost Hunters, Grant Wilson, uh, his mother actually passed away today, and uh I just want to give a shout out to Grant and his entire family. Much love from all of us over here and uh, your families in our prayers. Yeah, and uh, same same goes for me. Um, thoughts and prayers with you, Grant, and your family, of course. Uh, all right. We've got, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, we've got some great stuff coming up this week as well. In addition to tonight's program, tomorrow we've got Bernie Taylor, who's a naturalist and a thought leader um, on the program, talking about alternative thought circles that uh, are a product of the distance, distant past and things that we may have inherited culturally from Atlantis, from aliens, and other sources that would be considered uh, paranormal.
Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. All right. And Wednesday, we got Jennifer Longmore, Soul Purpose Coach. Uh, we're going to be talking past life regression and, and how past life can impact your ability to make money today. So... Oh, I, I want to know how I that mean, works. I, yeah, we must have done something really wrong. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what I did in my past life because I've never had visions or regressions, uh, so I'm not really sure. But I'm hoping it was something that was very lucrative. Well, and we, I had that, we had that one past life person. Oh, on that's here right. Who's telling us that you and I were what, cousins? Cousins, and I married. And I we were know. married. No, yeah, we were, <laughs> were, we, were we married together? Or that's which would really be strange. The whole thing was weird. I remember from the Civil War or something. Yes, yeah, yeah. some strange stuff. Like I don't that. remember who that guest was, but I do remember yeah, the conversation. I, and I just know that we're not having her back. Yeah. <laughs> Let's bring our guest, Jeremy Finley, into the discussion. Jeremy, I want to touch on one thing that we were chatting about just before the break. We we're talking about fake news and social media and all that. And one of the things, and I want to get your take on this as a reporter, but one of the things that is being talked about more and more are these laws that would be designed to address fake news issues. And the thought of that is a bit concerning from somebody who is a you know a First Amendment um, advocate. I, I don't. I'm curious as to what your opinion would be, on, and maybe your profession's opinion would be on uh, making laws that would actually control the speech of others on things like Facebook. You know, anything like that just frankly makes me a bit nervous. I I think that we have to keep uh, the the idea that we that we've got to keep this this truth and the, the, the reality of the freedom of expression um, open and unregulated. Now, what people don't understand is, yes, you have a right to your freedom of expression. You, you don't have a right, though, to uh, freedom of ramifications for expressing that freedom of expression. Um, I think that we, we have to understand that we, we are in this world where we're looking to punish and we are looking to do something destructive towards people or things that we don't like. Now, we have laws in place, obviously, to, to do these things if these actions become criminal. Um, I, I just think that regulating the news industry as any kind of way is a bad thing. I think that's moving us in a direction that is unnecessary, uh, and I think that it's, it's just a bad idea that if we had any type of regulation when it comes to uh, any type of regulation on the news industry just seems to give my, my skin to crawl a bit, to be honest. It's, a, it's an ugly specter, to use a paranormal it reference, is. for sure. Let's talk about some of the work you've done as an investigative reporter. Uh, you were instrumental in exposing uh, Toyota's problems, which uh, I think that case was referred to as the unintended acceleration problem. Tell us what happened there. Sure. It um, Obviously, years and years ago, I literally got a call from a gentleman who lives in uh, Middle Tennessee, and he said, listen, you need to know that my, my truck took off on its own, and uh, it was a Toyota Tacoma, and he said it, it literally operated on its own. I could not get it to stop to stop and it had a terrible accident and this was oh gosh i mean i have to think about how many years ago this was at least a decade ago i think and and i then started doing research across the country and found other people that were driving tacoma toyota tacoma pickup trucks they were all expressing this same concern that their trucks were literally taking off on their own 
so we started airing the investigations then into these uh, Toyota Tacoma pickup trucks. And, of course, at the time, Toyota was very much, you know, saying that this wasn't true, that this were, these were safe vehicles. And I think it wasn't less than two years later that they began the recalls and the unintended acceleration became a very real um, phenomenon that was happening. And it was one of the str- – and, and so after we – you know, after that happened, Congress began to hold hearings, and they and they showed our, you know, discussed our stories and their in their hearings to say, look, this was exposed two years before. Why did it take so long to come to the to the public's attention uh, on a national level? So that was one of those stories that literally started from a viewer just calling and saying something's not right with these trucks, and ended up being, you know, one of if not the biggest uh, recall in history for automobiles. When you do that kind of work, there must be a, an amazing gratification that comes out at the end when you realize that you've actually um, probably saved lives. You know, it's it's when, when that happens and you're right, it is incredibly gratifying, but journalists swim upstream every day. It is one fight after another for information to get information. So, you know, we, we take our wins when we can get them, but that is exactly why we do this. This is exactly why um, Woodward and Bernstein did what they did and what, again, I keep talking about these courageous women that have exposed Harvey Weinstein and what he did and Ronan Farrow. They do this because they're like, something is wrong and something is either dangerous or something is corrupt and it needs to be exposed. And this is why you do it. You do it so you can have some kind of positive impact on people and, and, and try to keep them safe. And, you know, that ranges from government to business, um, you know, consumer reporting. It, it's why it's so vital. And, and it's why, you know, we get up and do this every day. When you um, get to, I don't know, investigate, I guess would be the word, as an investigative reporter, politicians, is there a certain... Um, level of satisfaction when you can expose something that uh, betrays the public trust versus maybe more of a of a corporate type uh, reveal well, I'll tell you, I discussed this with another great colleague of mine here on our investigative unit and we literally this year did a series of stories that within two months had a judge with federal criminal charges, and that judge is now in federal prison. It happened that fast because of the stories that we did, and it never feels good. And I know that may sound a little bit strange for someone to say, oh, wait a second, you exposed the corrupt behaviors of this judge. It doesn't feel good to 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 put that information out and then to see people be punished for it. What feels good is that hopefully it restores a bit of faith that people have in journalism, which is what feels good, is when people come up and say, hey, you know, I I saw you did this, or would you help me with something, or I think this is corrupt. It's kind of a chain reaction that we get. I've been doing a series of stories into a a government agency that um, this year that after we did our stories, there are two Criminal charges were criminal investigations were launched, and the executive director of this government agency was terminated. None of that feels good. What feels good is when people see those stories and they call you and they say, "Hey, I've got something else you need to look into because I think this is a problem too." It kind of restores your faith in humanity a little bit when you see people brave enough to step forward to say, "Listen, this needs to be exposed." But in terms of feeling good, that's the only part that feels good. You know. 
thing, people fall from power. It, it, it's not, you never get a sense of satisfaction out of that. It's just, you know, it's, you still, or at the end of the day, know that, you know, someone has, has fallen and it, you know, is not a great feeling. But again, the great feeling is knowing that the public feels good about the kind of work you're doing. Well, yes and no. I mean, it also opens up the point where somebody falls from a place of power, but they abused that power and shouldn't have had it in the first place. So, and that, yeah, it's a, it's a true point, and it's um, you know you, you can look at it either either way. You can look at it and say, look, you just you had this coming, pal. When you when you t- ascend to this position of power and then you abuse it, what do you think is going to happen? But again, what I what I think that I, just keeps me going every day is when I get into work and I see the voicemails on my phone or emails or text tips that I've got from people saying, look, you know, I really want to expose this. I want to, I want people to know that what's happening is wrong, and I, that feels good. Let's let's turn the conversation to the uh, I got an expose that you did where you caught a politician in uh, lounging around in a bathrobe when they said they were actually supposed to be at a meeting. What was that about? So this was one of the. It's become one of the great um, Nashville folklore um, kind of uh, stories. Is that this was a, a relatively highly paid criminal court clerk, and he was um, notorious for not being in the office. And so the producer I was working with at the time uh, did exceptional work in following him, doing undercover uh, surveillance of him to show how often he wasn't in the office. Well, one day we knew he wasn't in the office. We knew where he lived. Um, it was in the middle of the workday, and. Uh, we knew he was home, and so I called him and I said, "Listen, I need to talk to you about you know all of this, you know stories that we've been working on." And he said, "Oh, well, I'm in a meeting right now." And 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 I said, "You know, oh, so you're in a meeting?" And and he said, "Yeah." And so then we got off the phone, and not long after, he comes walking out of the of his house in his bathrobe, uh, going to the mailbox, and um, and so then we, you know, of course, went to the door a few minutes later, and he answered the door, and I said, "Wait a second, you told me you're in a meeting in the office." And he uh, obviously was quite surprised, and he later was not um, reelected to to office. Um, but it, it it was one of those classic kind of you know politician uh, person on the taxpayer dime um, saying that they were in the office. And we've done this time and time again with um, elected officials here in Nashville, and, and I've seen it done across the country, where you literally can catch them in the act. And when you do that, it's it's really the most effective types of stories that we. Can can do because the proof is there and everybody sees it and um, you know it, it shows them that we're watching and I think that's important for you know politicians to know is that journalists are always watching well that's that's a great point because I think many of them get comfortable uh, they get away with it for a little while and they assume no one is watching so uh, they you know all someone else to do is kind of start paying attention you can catch a lot of the stuff so I have to say uh, again because it's a short segment here um, you're a Nashville uh, reporter in the Nashville area. Um, I've been in Nashville a few times. Beautiful, beautiful city, a fast-growing city. Um, do you find that Nashville uh, reporting varies any from any other part of the country? Is there something unique about it? You know, I will say this. What Nashville has, which I'm very proud of, is that we have these great investigative units. Um, so there's great investigative work that is being done here on all levels, from our NPR stations to our television stations to our newspapers, our weekly magazines. So it's really, really strong for investigative reporting. I think that, you know, it is, um, you know, it's like a lot of progressive, but also very southern cities, uh, where it still very much feels like 
like it's a small town where you know all of the players, but it is in this large, growing city that is, has an influx of people from New York and Los Angeles. We have a hundred people moving here a day, so the culture itself is extremely changing. So it's been really interesting to come here in 2003 and find it kind of to be this sleepy little southern town to be what it is today. So the influx that we have is really changing the city, and um, but you know, but the, at the same time, it's just a great, fun place to live, and uh, so it's an exciting time to be in the city. Exciting, well, especially seeing we got a couple hundred people leaving here a day yeah, in Rhode true. Island. In I mean, we're, we're out of here. Upstate New York is the same way. <laughs> Jeremy, when you uh, decided to write a novel, what guided you as to what the topic was going to be? You know, the idea uh, came to me uh, from all places from my mother-in-law. She was, um, she's this phenomenally uh, great, kind, quiet, unassuming woman. And we were in the kitchen of their house one day, and she was telling the story of what she did while my father-in-law was in law school. And she was um, in her very early 20s and, and working this job, and she took a job in an astronomy department at a university. University, at Northwestern University, and she said uh, among the professors who she worked for was a professor who did UFO research, and she started telling us these stories of all these amazing and bizarre and troubling messages that she would take from him from all over the world of people talking about abductions and um, sightings of, of spacecrafts and, and things like that, and uh, and she said that he this professor would go on to be an extra in Close Encounter of the third kind, because if you may recall, they used a lot of actual professors who studied this as extras in that movie. And so when she was done telling the story and I picked my jaw off the floor, I, I, I went to bed that night and I thought, my God, this, this is a phenomenal story. Uh, but obviously I you know, wanted to keep a big uh, separation from the truth, from fiction. So I really didn't ask her much more about what she had done. And I took that story and uh, turned it into, into the book that would become The Darkest Time of Night. When somebody compares it to uh, something like Close Encounters, and I think somebody said in one of their comments about the book that this was the, the Close Encounters for the new generation, you must get a heck of a lot of satisfaction. I will tell you that it was one of the great reviews that I had gotten. It was when another great uh, New York Times bestselling author reviewed the book and said, and she did, she called it a Close Encounters for the Modern Age. Um, th that's the best kind of praise that you can get. Again, any references uh, to another uh, writer had, had said that it, you know, if you love the X Files and you love Stranger Things, you know, this is this is a book that you'll enjoy because those are the those are the stories that I love and those are the movies and the books and and the TV shows that that I love. I think these series really change the game for uh, for all of us that are interested in the paranormal and, and, and speculative fiction and 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 all of this. I, I, so to have those comparisons is about as good as it gets. Give us a little bit of an outline of what this story tell, tells us or talks about or what the plot is without giving anything away. No spoilers here. Sure. Um, so it, it tells the story of the disappearance of a U.S. senator's grandson is how it begins. And the boy goes missing in the woods behind his uh, grandparents' home. Uh, the only witness to the disappearance is the boy's older brother, uh, who will only say, and only say at once, that the lights took him, and then will never speak again about what he saw. 
So, of course, the National Guard and the FBI come in. Uh, it comes to find out that the grandfather uh, has high political aspirations. He's a U.S. senator, but he has even higher aspirations. So there are many theories as to what happened to this boy. But ultimately, uh, the boy's grandmother uh, begins to remember some of what she used to research when uh, she was a uh, had a, a certain job in the uh, 1960s and begins this uh, quest to try and find out what happened to her grandson, but in doing so will force her to return to the research that she used to do that she has concealed from her family uh, because exposing what she knows, exposing what she did, could very much uh, damage her husband's political career. Uh, so that's how the novel begins. Oh, definitely a catch-22 there, right? <laughs> well, I hope uh, I hope uh, you guys heard it, and I hope that your listeners heard it and, and might want to find out more. Again, uh, you go to uh, the website jeremyfinley.com or go to Amazon. The book uh, is available in both places. I think um, on the on the website, uh, Jeremy, it probably links right to Amazon or something, doesn't it? It sure does. It has all the places that you can buy. You can also um, see all of the reviews, and we've been thrilled to see um, everyone from NPR to the New York Post to People Magazine all give great reviews. People and um, the New York Post have called it uh, one of the best books of the summer. Um, and then the other reviews, so you can look and see what, what other uh, some really top-notch reviewers have been great to give us some great uh, feedback. We've also got some videos on there that you can watch uh, the book trailer that we put together for the book and some of the other television appearances, some other television coverage of the book. So uh, there's a lot on there to enjoy, I hope. Jeremy, the state of publishing these days, things have changed so much. The digital age has changed everything. I don't think there's an industry that hasn't been touched. And writers and publishers, it's actually open doors because people can self-publish. However, it's also made uh, you know book sales a little bit challenged at times, um, although it's being replaced a little bit by electronic readers. But what do you see the industry of the publishing world? You know, that what's been fascinating to see is the rise of the audiobook and how that has become such a huge part of sales. And I'm thrilled to say that The Darkest Time of Night has a great audiobook that has a great performance by a really talented actress who uh, tells the story. And people are really getting into this because of all the commutes that we all have and the traveling we have to do. In listening to these books is, is become this real uh, phenomenon. So you're absolutely right. It's a challenge. It is a, a huge challenge. It's a crowded marketplace. But they see that this audiobook has become a big deal. So you're going to see a lot more of this. You're going to see on Audible and, and being able to download it. Um, but I think that we're also, again, in this age where we need this escapism and a healthy escapism. Um, and I, I think reading books... Uh, whether you're reading it on a Kindle or or you prefer the the hardback or the paperback, um, you know it, 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 that's never going to go away. It's going to be challenging. It's going to be fluctuating, um, but I think that that it's never actually going to go away. So I, I'm thrilled to be publishing my first novel in this era, 
Uh, and, you know, luckily, you know, I, I've had a team of exceptional editors at St. Martin's Press out of New York uh, that have just done a phenomenal job helping me tell the story. And I'm thrilled to also say that uh, the sequel to The Darkest Time of Night will come out next year. So if you get in on it now uh, and enjoy what you've read, uh, there's much more to the story coming. Uh, and so we're, we're working on that right now. Well, and to get a book published these days, it's 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 really tough. And Jimmy Jimmy made a good point there. Um, like I was saying earlier, I've I've written books as well, and had I've had six out there. And but the fact of the matter is, I was lucky enough that I had I had a TV show that helped fuel the book. So sure. of course, you know, Simon and Schuster and and all those companies sign on because they want to see it. But for a small time uh, author who's just starting off. What do you recommend for them to do to try to get themselves noticed? You know, I I talked to this, especially at this conference in New York that I was just at. It was for a writer's conference, and I've talked about this with, you know, aspiring writers, is it seems to be so basic to say perseverance is everything, but it is everything. It literally is. We talked earlier in the last hour about studying the greats, which is what I did uh, when I set out to write a thriller. So the advice that I have is do your homework. Read the books in your genre so you know what the greats are doing and blatantly steal their methods. Don't feel bad at all about saying, hey, you don't want to steal their ideas, obviously, but look how they craft their stories. And then once you really get a good understanding of that, it's all perseverance. You write that story, you write it over and over and over and over again. You have it edited over and over again by friends. Um, and then you never give up. I had an incredibly long process of getting to publish, but the, the mindset that I had was, just as I have as a reporter, I was not taking no for an answer. And finally, it got to the point, I'll be 45 this fall, 44 when this book came out. I've wanted to be a novelist since I was in the fifth grade. So it just goes to show, if you don't quit, it will happen for you. If you really work on your craft and study the greats, I think that's the key. Great advice. You mentioned St. Martin's Press, and I and I don't usually do this on air, but um, do you know a, a, a person by the name of Peter Wolverton? I know Peter Wolverton very well. <laughs> he's my editor, and he's well, I think one of the best in the biz. He's he's a high school one of my best friends from high school. So that, that's, <laughs> I didn't know that going into this discussion. That's pretty cool. Well, that is amazing, and, and people should know that if you see a Peter Wolverton book, you know you are getting some great stuff there. It, it's so funny that you say that. I literally just had lunch with him a couple days ago, and he's just one of the funniest and sharpest and greatest guys. What was supposed to be an hour lunch ended up being a three-hour lunch because he's just the best. Uh, so well, I'm thrilled to have him as, a, as an editor, and he does a great job. So he's a he's a success story for your high school. You both are. This is, you your high school produces good men. Yeah, well, we call them Hooters. So next time you see him, you can use that <laughs> nickname for him. Hey, uh, Jason asked you the question, you know, what do you recommend for young folks who are aspiring to be authors? I'll ask the same question about young folks aspiring to be reporters. What do you recommend that they, they do? Is it is it is it is college necessary? Is jumping into a, a job? Will you tell us about what you recommend? Sure. I think that it is important for people to ask themselves if they want to be true journalists, are they willing to take on the responsibility of what it takes to 
to jump into this profession because I think a lot of young people get in because especially maybe with television they think it's going to be a glamorous job or or something of those lines um, you really have to give yourself a good gut check and you say okay is this truly what I'm going to do uh, really want to do with with my life and realize the challenges that come now if you have a passion for you know truly trying to you know change the world I think it's one of the great professions to enter um, is college necessary it is, and here's why. Uh, you need to study not only the practice of journalism, but also the ethics of journalism, which is so vital in, in the time frame that we're in. It's also vitally important to study political science and history. You don't even have to major in journalism these days if you don't want to, but study English, study history, study political science, really have a good understanding of how our democracy works and, and apply that. And, and then just like with uh, fiction writing, it's all about perseverance. You literally have to work harder than you think you possibly ever can. Um, but once you show your stuff, once you show how dedicated you are, it is a great profession. You, you never feel like you're going to work if you find what you love. And, and I'm extremely fortunate that, you know, I've, I've worked all of these years and it, it just, it's never felt like a job. It always has felt like just a really important calling, but also just a hell of a lot of fun. Will there be a job that uh, will be known as a newspaper reporter in the coming years, or is that in a, 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 some destined for extinction? You know, I, I, it's such a difficult thing for me to say because I, I love newspapers, and I, and I have so many friends who are newspaper reporters, and I started off as a newspaper reporter. I think that in the future, there's going to be, uh, everything is going to be digital. And I'll be completely honest about that. I think that, I like to think that there will always be newspapers, and I think there will be. I just think they'll be for a much smaller audience, but I think the demand is so high for the digital space. Uh, I think that's where it will come from. The challenge that journalism has to figure out is how in the world we're going to pay for things doing this. How are, are people going to subscribe to digital out, news outlets for something that they've always gotten for free? So it's a real challenge that we have to face, but Man, I, I love, I want to think that there's going to be a future of newspapers. I love newspapers. There's nothing better than being able to sit down and digest and slowly read through uh, a New York Times or a Washington Post or the Tennessean is a great newspaper here in Nashville and really digest opinions and, and all of this. Um, so I, I like to think, but I think we have to think realistically and, and it's all going to move to the digital space. Well, and you can see that just from the younger generation and the way they're coming up and everything's on their iPad, iPad, their Kindles, their their Nooks, you name it. Um, of and course. They're, they're downloading the magazines right there. You're able to carry an entire library now in, in just a tablet. Of course. And, I mean, even working for a television station, um, you know, so much of what we do is we're reporting for your phone. We are reporting stories that you will watch on your phone, and I'm and that's that's fine. That's where the, that's where it's coming from. I mean, we still want people to watch the evening news and the morning news, and the morning news is huge now in in so many segments because it's where people are able to get up uh, and start their days. But um, you know, we realize this too, and so that's why you're going to see the apps for news organizations and your local television stations is what they're pushing because I know that's where people are going. 
Yeah, and, and people also, they want the news instantly. Instantly they want to know what's going on instead of waiting the next day for it to show up in the newspaper. They want to know instantly, yep. and that's that's what it, my phone alerts me all day long with news stories that are popping up. And the, least thing, the least thing I can think of is waiting till tomorrow to, to be able to read it on the front page of the newspaper. Of course, and that you know the the great thing about newspapers is that they will give you that analysis that you may not have gotten um, from just seeing the news break on your phone. You can digest what's happened, but it's interesting. That's really what we've all had to move from. Is that by the time the nightly news comes on, you may think, okay, well, I, I know the news of the day. I've seen it on my phone. But a news organization that has done well will say, okay, here's what happened. Here's why it happened. Here's what you need to know about it, and give you more of that in depth information that you're not going to get from your phone. So, you know, as news organizations, we've had to really look at what we're doing. And again, I go back to the need for investigative reporting because, you know, you can follow the news of the day, but, you know, when you turn on the 6 o'clock news that night and you see an investigative report come on, you know that's not um, just a quick turn, um, you know, news coming at you, that this is something that someone has spent some time on and, you know, is important news to watch. Jeremy, thanks so much for being with us tonight. Again, the book is called The Darkest Time of Night. Your website is jeremyfinley.com. Any social media or anything else you want to let folks know about? Uh, my Twitter handle is real easy to remember. It's the call letters of my television station, which is WSMV Jeremy I Team. But if you look on Jeremy, look for Jeremy Finley on Twitter. I'll pop up there. Facebook, I'm easy to be found. And again, the website JeremyFinley.com has all the information on the book. And fellas, I so appreciate it. I had such a great time talking about the book, and just as importantly, I had a great time talking about the state of the news industry. I think it's important that we have more conversations like this. Check out his website JeremyFinley.com. His book is called The Darkest Time of night and it sounds really interesting yeah it does we, we got to check it out so yeah. and if you don't want to read it hey get it in audio version that description <laughs> uh, is intriguing and um and the fact that it was compared to uh, something like close encounters also uh x files said that people who like the x files are going to love it so yeah it sounds perfect for I mean, us chris car i mean that, the x files is phenomenal i love that show so hey if you haven't yet head over to facebook.com slash beyond reality radio like the facebook page for us then head to beyond reality radio.com where you can find all the stations we air on across the country. That list is constantly being updated with new stations being added all, this, all the time, so check it often. Uh, you can also download the free iPhone and Android app if we're not on a station in your area. That allows you to listen live, catch past shows, join the online chat, and more. Or just listen anytime we're live right from the website by clicking the Listen Live tab in the upper right-hand corner of the website and listen right there from the luxury of your computer. Uh, from your computer. If you download the show from iTunes or anywhere else, do us a favor and just rate it for us because it helps push it forward and makes it easier for people to find, and that's what it's about, just trying to get the word out. I also like to get the word out about something else. What? I've used a certain um, web hosting company that has done me wrong, and I'm very, very angry uh -oh. about it. Uh -oh. <laughs> and I told them during the course of my conversations over the weekend that I was going to let everybody know uh, that pays attention to what we're doing here uh, that they shouldn't use this company. And I've decided against using the name on air, but I am going to post it on my social media. So, <laughs> Jimmy's venting. Uh -oh. uh, I am so angry. I cannot even begin to tell you how angry I am. Well, that's going to do it for us tonight. Make sure so you angry. <laughs> so make sure you tune in tomorrow, and Jimmy won't be as angry, and it'll probably be in happier shows. So, all right, you listen to Jason and JV Beyond Reality Radio. We'll catch you all tomorrow. 
Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.